That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BX, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. What he taught me was, don't be so inflexible and think there's only one thing you can do. The law changes, the law is cyclical. It changes every five to 10 years. What you need is a skill set that will enable you to adapt to the change. And you ought to be thinking about what the next trend is and how you might be participating in it, as opposed to, oh, the trend is out there. I just want to do what these other guys are doing. BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is my good friend, Dan Johnson, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Hi, Merle. And uh, everyone should take her, her statements at face value. I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think anybody who knows me does that, Dan. Um, Let me just tell the folks a little bit about you. Um, Dan uh, received his undergraduate degree from Berkeley, um, received his Yale, his his law degree from Yale, um, was a deputy uh, AG for a while before joining Cooley, uh, back when it was Cooley Godward. uh, then moved to Fenwick and then to Morgan Lewis. Um, he is a preeminent IP litigator. Uh, he currently has his own firm. Uh, and one of the things we're going to talk about is he is also a vintner uh, and has his own label called Okapi. Did I miss anything, Dan? No, no. Okay. All right. So um, I, I want to start with um, your story. I always start start with your story. So I actually don't know where where you are from, where you were raised. I don't know anything about your your family. And, and on this podcast, you know, it, it always kind of becomes pretty apparent that where we came from uh, forms who we are today. So would you, <laughs> would you agree with that? And, and if so, how? Talk, talk to us about you. Well, okay. I'll answer your, your question. I think it absolutely forms uh, certain aspects of your personality. Um, but I'm not sure in a positive way. Uh, <laughs> I, I was born in Vallejo, California. My parents came to California during uh, the war. My father uh, parents had died when he was 19. He got one of those uh, one-way tickets to California to work in the military-industrial complex, and so he got uh, boarded a bus, came out to California, and started working uh, at Mare Island, which is located in Vallejo. My mother, one of nine children, came to California uh, with her family. She was uh, had just graduated from high school and ended up. Uh, working on Mare Island, and that's where she met my dad. So I grew up in essentially a little town north of San Francisco, which is uh, mostly noted uh, for the fact that it was the military installation, and basically most of the people came from the south and the Midwest. So we had a we had a, a city in California which felt, looked, and acted like it was a a, a southern city. And so did you stay there until you went off to college? I left Vallejo at the end of my junior year in high school and moved to Sacramento. My father decided that he'd had enough of, uh, of life in Vallejo and wanted a bigger house. So we had a house built in Sacramento. Uh, and I finished my last year in high school at Luther Burbank, where I went from Vallejo, which was about 30, maybe even 40 percent black, to Luther Burbank, which had a a uh, population of close to 2,500 with 60 black people. 
Wow, okay. And so I'm sure that experience helped form or inform you uh, going forward, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, the biggest difference was uh, it, 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 when I was a junior in high school, I'd gotten four A's and two B's, and I had not been invited to college day. And when I went to see my, uh, to talk to my counselor about it, because I couldn't understand it, he told me that, well, those are good grades, but uh, I wasn't really a four-year college person that I would have to start at junior college first. And wow. livid, I, I went to talk to my I had his honors history course, and I went to talk to my uh, professor who said, well, uh, you might be able to make it at state college, but you'll never make it at university. Um, contrast that with my first day at Luther Burbank in this all white high school. When you have basically they give you an IQ test uh, before they decide uh, which classes you can take. So it was me and, and these two uh, two white girls. Uh, we all finished it about the same time when I walked in and the woman said, you finished? And I said, yeah. And she says, wow. And I thought, why is that significant? Uh, and then a couple of minutes later, she came back in and she says, what courses do you want to take? And I said, I don't understand. She said, well, you're qualified to take any course we have available uh, in the uh, at, at our school. Uh, so which course do you want to take, A? And B, Have you? Uh, I need you to tell me what your plans are for applying for college. And that was the first time anybody uh, consulted had, uh, you. <laughs> basically said, you know, your college material. We expect you to apply to college. I want to make sure you've got all your grades lined up. Uh, let's go. I was the first time it ever happened to me. I was a senior in college, and here was a here was a white uh, high school counselor basically saying, "You're smart enough to go anywhere, uh, and you should plan for it." Wow, that's that's awesome. Now, you told me that when you got to Berkeley, uh, you read a book called Democracy in America. And then that was one of the things that actually helped uh, you prepare for what you would ultimately have to have to uh, uh, travel through, um, particularly through in, in the law. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Democracy in America was written by Tocqueville. He was a, a, a French author who came to America back in the, uh, I guess, like 1820s. Uh, and he was going to write a book about America, uh, and that was going to make him famous. Uh, he wrote the book. He became famous. But the basic premise of the book was something that stuck with me. And that was that the problem with democracy is that everybody's equal. And that the basic nature of man is to, is to create inequality. That is to say that some people always want to be on top and they want to figure out a way to put other people on the bottom. Uh, and my takeaway from that was, A, that I thought it was actually true. Uh, and, and, but, but secondly, that it, it, it provided an ec economic explanation for racism. By that I mean, if I can convince you that you're inferior you become less of a competitive threat. And if I can convince you that you don't fit, you become less of a competitive threat. So if you view uh, racism in, the con in an economic con context, it makes it easier for you to understand what's happening to you. It also makes it easier for you to defend against. Interesting. It's funny. And it's funny that you say that. I actually took a um, course at UCLA on how to do a TED Talk a few years ago. And, you know, we were supposed to come up with a, you know, a statement and then do a TED Talk based on it. And I actually decided that my statement was all men are not created equal. And I, you know, I thought that was a great premise, you know, to to really challenge kind of what the, you know, our what we're what we're told uh, about democracy and about, you know, uh, the, you know, our, our uh, opportunities and the te the teacher the, uh, the the guy who was teaching this class he just couldn't understand it now it turns out he was actually a very well-known actor <laughs> um, <laughs> and and he was a good guy but he just couldn't grasp what I was trying to say and so I ended up changing my thesis but um, Interesting. I, I totally I totally understand that and so then you went on 
from Berkeley, and I'm going to go back to Berkeley, but you went on uh, from Berkeley to Yale for law school, and you're actually there at the same time with with Hillary and Bill Clinton, right, and Clarence Thomas, right? Right. I knew Bill and Hillary really well, and uh, one of my favorite jokes is I knew Clarence Thomas when he was a Democrat. But <laughs> yes, I was there, and I, and I know them all. And so... How does that feel? You know, how does it feel to have been, you know, there with folks who, you know, I mean, we, you know, and I, I was in school with people who have uh, risen, and I've known people who have risen to, to, you know, relative greatness. Um, but how does it feel to have been in class and in small group with with those folks? And well, you know, it's funny because at the time they were students just like me. Right. Um, Bill Clinton was the only person I ever met in my life who I was convinced was going to be a politician because uh, that he was as completely political. He was always thinking about uh, the implications of various various uh, social issues. Um, uh, Hillary was more of a student. Um, and and the, what it felt like is what you would expect if you knew what you were doing when you went to an Ivy League law school. By that, I mean the purpose of going to an Ivy League law school, besides getting the degree, is to develop relationships with people who may be able to help you in some way or another later in your life. Most black people's approach to that was they didn't develop any relationships with most white people because all they wanted to do was hang out with their own because that's who they were most comfortable with. I fell in the latter category. So the result was I knew these people, but not nearly as well as I would have. I should have known them because <laughs> it would have been more advantageous uh, later in life. Um, but what more than anything else, what it shows you is it, it made it easy not to second guess yourself because I was in school with some of the most the, the best and the brightest anywhere. And I was able to do more than just hold my own. Uh, so when I got out in the real world. Uh, my reaction was, uh, you know what? I made it yell. I think I can do okay here. And a good example of that was the California bar. At the time in 1973, the pass rate for black folks coming out of Bolton, uh, other places was about 15%, one five. Wow. The pass rate for Yale, uh, graduates of Yale Law School was 96%. So the question that I wrote on my door was, are you black or, or are you a Yaley? Okay. Okay. I passed the bar the first time. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, when I decided I was going to go to law school, because I went to USC undergrad, and I totally know what you're talking about. I went to USC. I It didn't occur. And I was from Compton, right? So it didn't occur to me that I could cross over very much. Right. Um, and and it was more comfortable to to hang with you know mostly black folks if not all black folks um and 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 it didn't i mean sc is the type of person if place if you stay in 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 southern california you should be hooked up right right i you know i i don't i'm not as hooked up as i should be uh but i didn't know any better i didn't have that that example uh, from my parents. My parents couldn't tell me that like you and I could tell our kids. But then then I went to, when I decided to go to law, to law school, I went to an advisor at SC, told them I was wanted to go to law school. I only wanted to go to a top 10 law school. And they said, you're not getting in. Right. And I said, watch me. <laughs> um, and so I think we, and then at Berkeley, I had a teacher, my contracts teacher told me I should quit. I shouldn't be there. Right. And, and and when I took the bar, I studied like it was a job. I took it and I passed it the first time. So I think that, you know, what is it about us or you and I that, that you know, you can have people telling you these things, trying to discourage you, trying to stomp out your dreams, and you and you don't listen. You, you, you keep going. Where does that come from? Uh, I wish I knew. I, th- I think there are two things. Number one, I think if you're smart enough to figure out that, that 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 people are discouraging you, not because it's the truth, but because uh, they think they can get away with it, and you're not, and you don't succumb to it, in the back of your mind, you're saying this is BS, and I know it's BS. Um, 
But I also think that to be successful as a minority, particularly in the black community, uh, which which if you are a smart black kid uh, and you're in college prep, at least I was uh, in that situation, you basically were ostracized. You were ostracized right. by the, the black folks because they said, oh, you think you're smarter than us. And you were ostracized by the whites because they said, how the hell are you? What the hell are you doing in our class? The result, the result is you become much more self-reliant and much more determined to figure out what it takes. Because if you don't and if you aren't, you are likely to say, well, you know, I'm just going to go with the flow and hang with my people. Um, the second piece of that is that you're brought up to, to, to stay with your own kind. So when you think of the black table uh, in college or law school, that's just a, an extension of the way you were raised. In the black community, you were only around black people. There was no real integration to speak of. Uh, so you you did what was comfortable. Well, the truth of the matter is that college is about much more than getting a grade. It's about developing relationships and, and, and starting to understand the world in different contexts. But we, it was never intended for us to actually be part of this other world. Uh, and you see that over and over again when you talk to black folks in law firms, the sense of isolation, like there's nobody here who looks like me. Well, guess what? Doesn't matter. You still need to, to if you want to be successful, you got to figure out a way to, to, uh, to work that system. Yes, and you figured that out. I mean, you were the first black partner uh, at Cooley. You know, talk to, talk to me about that. <laughs> well, it's uh, it, 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 I've always felt that I'm strange and 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 a little weird because me too. No, just kidding. I figured out I figured out fairly early on that the biggest mistake you, there were two big mistakes you could make. One, not being comfortable in your own skin, mm-hmm. and Two, uh, uh, hoping that, that there would be some, some, some great white angel who was going to show you the way. So let's talk about the first piece. So I grew up listening to soul music and a little bit of jazz and loving sports. And when I went, I attended my first litigation meeting, the, the head of the firm was there and he was talking about the opera and the ballet. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't like the opera. I don't like the ballet. And this is a true story. You're not going to believe it, but it actually happened. So at one of the meetings, he went on and on and on about something. I think it was a symphony at the time. And so I asked him, I said, well, that's really cool. I said, but have you heard Gladys Knight's latest album? <laughs> he got this He got this blank look on his face. And, and the rest of the people in the room looked at me. I said, oh, I said, I like Gladys Knight. I just thought it would be fun. And it was it was sort of eye-opening for two reasons. Number one is why would why would you be stupid enough to say something like that? And the answer is because because you could. But the second thing is it allowed you to say, you know, you can be different and still be successful. I can like Gladys Knight. I can like Gladys Knight and you can like a mezzo soprano, and that doesn't have a damn thing to do with the job at hand. And what happened to me was I figured that out. And so I continued to talk sports. I continued to like the music I liked. I'm, and the, the, but I didn't hold it against someone else if they liked something else. The other thing was, you know, the way you dress. So everybody had on a gray striped suit uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a blue and red and, and, and usually gold or white uh, striped tie. And that was so boring, I couldn't believe it. And as a result, I never shopped at Brooks Brooks Brothers. I never wore those kinds of clothes. I always wore stuff that was stylish but but professional. And so I could feel good about myself in that context. That didn't mean you show up in a pink suit or a, or a, or some wild wild electric blue thing, but it meant you could have a slightly different style and still be a considered a professional. That made you more comfortable. And that level of comfort allowed you to move uh, through the process, I think, in a way that uh, uh, that, that might make you un- uncomfortable otherwise. And I say that because I knew lots of black folks 
I mean, they were, they were, they, you'd see them wearing a blue blazer, for example, or just say a blue suit or a striped black suit, right? And then the minute they got out and they could be themselves, they would have on something that was a lot more stylish because that's the way we grew up. Right. How you manage that is, is obviously an individual decision, but recognizing that being comfortable in your own skin is one of the most important things you can do if you want to be successful. And that's all about embracing your authenticity, right? That's that's why I wanted to do this podcast. That's why I wanted I wanted people to hear that it's possible to, you know, do well, be you and do well. I mean, you have to be smart with it, right? You have to be good sure. at what you do. Um, but you don't you don't have to be somebody else, and you shouldn't be. Uh, anyone else because you're not going to be comfortable. Right. And you see so many, so many guys that I knew and so many women I knew who were trying to be somebody else, they would always wash out and they washed out because they could just never fit in and feel like they were, they were part of the group. Whereas with me, they'd laugh, "Eh, you know, Dan loves his ball. Yeah, I do. (laughs) I love (laughs) basketball. (laughs) Right. I love football and I want to go to all the games. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to work hard and it doesn't mean uh, that I can't write, which, as you both know, as, as we all know, is the, is the key to being successful in this business. Yes, yes. Being able to write well, concisely uh, and and, you know, researching, too, but actually being able to write. Uh, is, is the key. And that's one of the things that we told her. And I know your son is a writer. My daughter's a writer. I think that that, that was probably something that we uh, drilled into them, an, an, an appreciation for for writing early. Well, my, and Kate, my, you know, the truth is our kids were so different than us because they all grew up in a multicultural society. They went to private yeah. schools. They had the best of everything. And so all they ever knew was uh, the multi multicultural, uh, approach. And so it was easier, much, it was easier for them in one way and harder for them in another, because it, if they, if they went to the black community and I basically forced my, all of my kids to, uh, they realized that they were different and they, and I would have to tell them, yeah, you're different. You do things differently, but that doesn't mean that somebody else's approach is better or worse. It just means it's different. And, you know, it, uh, that was a, that's, it was troubling um, because what you want to try to avoid is uh, what would ultimately happen in some instances. My, my kids would come home and I'd say, we're going, we're, we were going to Hawaii for, for spring break. And then uh, I, I asked my daughter, some, what about your friends? She says, no, 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 they live in apartments and uh, they don't get to go spring break. Right. And it was really a problem for my kids. And I had to sit down and explain it. That doesn't mean that uh, uh, that, they, that that those guys won't be successful. It doesn't mean that you're bad. It doesn't. It just means you have you have uh, choices they don't have. Right. You can't hold that against them. Don't let them hold it against you because that's the key. People will hold your uh, your kid. They'll hold your kids hostage, claiming, uh, uh, well, you got all these benefits, so therefore. You, you should feel bad. No, you should. You got the benefits. The question is, can you take advantage of them? Right. We kind of had the opposite experience because, you know, we purposely stayed in, you know, black neighborhood. You know, we live in View Park. You know, it's upper upper middle class black View, black view Park doesn't qualify as a, quote, black neighborhood. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, yeah, it does. Yeah, buddy. But, Those tiny but, little houses in View Park. With the, on, the, on, the, on the postage stamp lots. Now, if you go down a few blocks on, on Crenshaw over to Western, yeah, I'll agree with you. But hey, don't I'm, tell me about View Park. Please. I'm two, I'm two blocks from Crenshaw. But anyway, yeah. um, but, but at least our daughter every day saw black people, you know, right. a, a, every day. And, you know, living here and, you know, she went to Harvard Westlake. She, was in, she went to school with Spielberg's kids and Denzel's kids. Her experience in that environment was as helpful for me to help me drop, you know, not all, but some of my baggage um, right. as it was was for her. Well, and the point to be made is you don't realize the power that uh, racism or being excluded has on you until you find yourself in a situation where 
this is not normal. You know, these people don't come to my house and all of a sudden they're there and you're saying, well, guess what? It is normal. You're the one who refuses to accept the differences. That's a that's a that's a struggle in and of itself. And I had I've given my kid lots of lectures about not just white racism, but black racism. Yep. And explaining why the, the, the crabs in the barrel uh, is exists and what it means. It all comes back to, you know, the economic principles I articulated earlier that, in fact, people figure out a way to make you less competitive. And to the extent that you can figure out that's what they're doing and ignore it, you give yourself a much better chance to succeed. And if you want the best example of that, just look at folks who come here from other countries, yeah. from, from the Caribbean, from Africa. Strange, they managed to do, to do extraordinarily well uh, uh, because they grew up in an environment where they didn't have that extra baggage. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, it requires a lot of uh, work on yourself, but it can be done. And you know what? Always be, you know, being a life learner, always being willing to learn, always being willing to work on yourself is something that I've definitely embraced. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, re, I don't know if you figured out, but I have triggers. I have, I, I, oh, have, yeah. tr- I have triggers, and, and you know, and it's hard to let those go. And no, oh, yeah, I agree. And, yeah, and, and it's hard to explain to people where those triggers come from. Um, it just, how how it's, do you deal with that? Well, that's a hard question. And it's a hard question because um, most of the time you don't realize that you are reacting uh, based upon uh, some deep-seated uh, issue uh, that, that happened when you were a kid. Somebody called you a name. Somebody gave you these, you got tired of getting the same dirty looks. Cops would stop you. And then suddenly, in a different context, something comes up that reminds you of that. And you're, th- you're responding to that, not to the situation in front of you. But I learned the hard way uh, was that I had to learn how to check myself. Right? I mean, right. I, I mean my normal, when you went out, when I was a kid, your normal response was, you're standing out in the uh, outside talking trash and calling somebody names, and the next thing you know, the push would come to shove, and it was on. It was either that, or you just kept talking crap until the person would go away. Well, you do that in a in a law firm context, and it's a disaster. It's a complete disaster because they don't get it. They don't tease each other the way we tease. They don't say the kinds of things we say to one another. But the fact of the matter is. That there is just another way to handle these situations, and if you're smart enough to 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 think before you leap, or better yet, don't speak before you've actually figured out what's going on, you got a better shot at being successful. Now, having said that, you know what? I mean, you've known me. Nobody would consider me to be a shrinking violet because I'm not. No. <laughs> but on the other hand, I work really hard. For example at dialing back the angry black man uh, mantra. So I'm 6'5", and I got a deep voice. I am, I was, and I would never shout at people. But And the reason I wouldn't shout is, one, it's counterproductive if you're trying to uh, keep a team together. But secondly, but secondly, I did not want to be uh, the, the, the angry black guy, right? And it, and it used to crack. It, and you, of course, yeah, cause I can intimidate people just by standing up. Right. And you can't believe the number of people who would swear up and down that I was, I screamed and shouted and stomped my feet and, and it never happened. I believe it. Because they wanted to believe it to be the case. And you, you have to recognize that that's what's going on. So you basically say you learn a good lesson, which is you don't need to shout and scream anyway. And you certainly don't need to grab anybody, but you do, you do need to figure out that there are things that you do that are not going to work well and you got to deal with it. So tell us a little bit about your practice and how it, how, how'd you get into IP? You know, I know you've done it extraordinarily well. Um, let, you know, you know, brag a little bit for me. (laughs) 
one of the problems with having just had that conversation about being the, the angry black man uh-huh. is is from, if you're a black person, nobody wants to hear about your success. Well, I want to <laughs> hear it, and our audience wants to hear it. So, so, so here's the fun part. How did I become interested in uh, becoming part of NIP? I'll tell you exactly how. I was, uh, when I first made partner, uh, the, the other white partners wouldn't give me work. They wanted to see if I could make it on my own. Hooray, hooray. <clears throat> even though they didn't have to. Uh, and so I went to the uh, the assignment partner who was a personal friend of mine. His name was Ken Adelson. And I said, Kenny, I need help. you got to give me cases. Give me the, I'll take any case you, you've got. I don't care how bad it is. I'll do it because I just got to get my hours. Right. And Adelson said, okay. And he gave me these cases. And what happened was a lot of times these were cases that were winnable um, but they just required effort. And so I started getting a string of, of, of good results and develop, that's how I was able to develop my reputation. But one day, I, uh, uh, he, he came to me and he said, you know, the partners, uh, other partners turned down this case. They don't want it. Some funky case involving a savings and loan executive. And can you figure it out? And I said, okay, I'll look at it. I looked at it. And he went back to him. I said, hey, man, this is a big fraud case. These guys have been ripping people off. I think this is huge. I think it could be a big case. And the rest of them said, blah, blah, blah. Sure, Dan, you go do it. Uh-huh. That turned into, that was one of the first cases in the savings and loan scandal in the early 80s. And I ended up going from no to, from no work to, to, bring, to generating millions and millions of dollars in revenue for the firm. Mm-hmm. And having uh, having as many as 40 to 60 lawyers work and then legal assistants working for me at one time. Well, wow. that's 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 literally how my career got launched. Um, but after those cases started to die down, I was told, look, you know, these cases are going away. We're going to give you uh, we're going to pay for your gas and you're going to drive from I lived in Oakland. Uh, down to our new office in Palo Alto, uh, and uh, uh, we're going to give you a year, and you got to figure out a way to grow that practice. Now, the backstory was that there were two other guys who'd gone down there, both of whom had been given the responsibility for growing the litigation practice, and both had failed miserably. So I get down there, and one of the one of the patent prosecutors, because that's where the prosecutors were, were resident, came up to me mm-hmm. and he said, Dan, you got to be our patent lawyer. I said, I've never even seen a patent. I don't know what they look like. He says, we don't care. We think you're smart enough to figure it out, and we're going to help you. You're now a patent uh-huh. litigator. And that's <laughs> okay. li- that yeah, is okay. literally how somebody who's a political theory major uh, became a patent litigator. Uh, at the beginning, this was the beginning of the, of the, uh, the era of, 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 of IP lit, and we... I, you know, I, I ended up trying lots of uh, cases, both as plaintiff and defendant. Um, got some incredible results. Um, I've probably got one, two, three, four, five, five cases um, that went to trial. And, and, and as plaintiffs, I got verdicts uh, over $100 million, $50 million, uh, $200 million. I have two cases wow. settled, one for $400 million, one for $300 million. Three hundred fifty million, excuse me, thereabouts. Uh, so yeah, I've done okay. Um, but that's but what 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 it taught me was, don't be so inflexible and think there's only one thing you can do. Mm-hmm. The law changes. The law is cyclical. It changes every five to ten years. What you need is a skill set that will enable you to adapt to the change. And you ought to be thinking about what the next trend is and how you might be participate in it as opposed to all oh, the trend is out there. I just want to do what these other guys are doing. Um, I got in the IP game early uh, and uh, while it's dramatically different now, given what the Supreme court has done in the federal circuit, uh, the reality is it was uh, it was a great time to get in it. And, and just to be blunt, I mean, I, I could have and probably should have fallen flat on my face, but really? I didn't. Yeah, because I didn't have a science background. Right. 
right? I, I, mean, I, don't, I didn't, I'm not, I didn't code anything. Um, but I, I, I developed relationships with guys who did. I, I became uh, fluent in understanding the language so that I could communicate it to a jury, uh, and I could do it in a way that they understood it. And that was my biggest skill set. That and figuring out where the pitfalls were, what, where, where, where were the problems that I needed to, to address? Um, one more time, I bet on me. I figured I was smart enough to figure it out. If it was logic-based, then I, why shouldn't I be able to figure it out? So in terms of, you know, we all know that, you know, making partner, being a partner, um, even then it's all about revenue generation. I mean, the law is, especially at big firms, is, is a business, right? And, you know, when you were coming along, it had to be even harder to hold on to origination credit. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's the same now. Um, but, you know, how did you, how did you manage that? How did you make that work? <laughs> you know, one of the great problems when you're in a firm is understanding the business model, right? You've got origination credit, you got uh, you uh, you've got client relationship credit, and it is the case that you have a target on your back, particularly if you're black. If you got there's a big case that comes in. There's always somebody saying, oh, that should be my client, or that is my client, or you stole my client. Uh, I, I dealt with that my entire career, and the way I dealt with it was very simply was like, if you can do what I do, fine. But if you can't, then I don't want to hear from you. Now, think about that for a second. That meant two things. One, you just created uh, another enemy. Yeah. Right? Two, yeah. two, you're only as good as your last win. Right. So if you if you don't have uh, a level of comfort that would enable you to say, uh, you know what? You're going to give me mine. Or I'll go somewhere else. That kind of attitude is can allow you to be successful. It will likely not allow you to be popular. But will what, what will allow you to be popular is I tried a big case. <clears throat> I can't give you the settlement number. But we had it on a partial contingency fee, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I tried it when I was at uh, at Morgan Lewis, and the, uh, the we ultimately collected the about twenty percent of the firm's total revenue for the year in one case. Wow! They gave me a standing ovation. Wow. Right? Yeah. I didn't want a standing ovation. I wanted another twenty percent. You want your money? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so, so the answer the answer to your question is, is 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 nobody is going to be uh, your best mentor, your best advocate for you, other than you. Other than you, and, yeah. And you have to you have to play this delicate uh, dance where you you get along uh, and at, on the same hand on one hand, but you make sure you take care of your business and you get what you're entitled to on the other. So let's let's talk about uh, Okapi. Uh, okay. Talk, talk talk to me about the you know how you got started in the wine business. You know what you guys are doing. I know you have some award winning wines. I have one sitting in my uh, on my on my table right now. Um, <laughs> uh, so you know, talk to me about why you did it, what you like about it, and 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 all that. So, so I, I got into, to, I never really thought about wine until I was trying a case for uh, one of my, uh, corporate partners in Santa Rosa. He had this winery that was in the middle of this fight with the contractor over a leakage. And then, although I didn't do construction defect, he said, look, man, you know, I need you to go up there and try it. They're going to have seven cases. They're going to go back to back in bankruptcy court. And so it's all day, starting at 8 o'clock, going to 8 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. So I'm up there, and I'm trying these cases. And about three-quarters of the way, we got through, and the case settled. All of them settled at the same time. But the client's in the back. So it's probably done about 6, 6.30 thereabout. And the guy says to me, says, you like wine? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I really, I don't really <laughs> drink. I'm not a big drinker. So he said, well, come back to me. So we'll come back to the winery. So I go to the winery. The name of the winery was Chateau St. Jean. 
-hmm. And the guy, I get there and he takes out like, I don't know, 15 different bottles of wine. And he was the, uh, the winemaker. His name was Dick Arrowwood. Dick Arrowwood is a very, very, very successful winemaker. He had his own label for a number of years. I don't know what, what, what's become of him. But in any event, he taught me how to, how to, how to taste. And I'm driving back home. I thought that is cool. I really liked it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I decided, oh, early 50s, that because I was a baby boomer, I mm -hmm. wanted to find the retirement home that I could, I could buy now. And then, uh, and then when I retired, I'd be all, it'd be all done. Right. So, you know, basically I had a one hour by car, one hour plane ride rule because I didn't want to have to go, you know, five hours in plane or five hours or in a car. That didn't right. sound to me like a great idea. So I found this place in Napa and it, it had uh, some walnuts on it. And I said, I want to grow grapes. Now, do I know anything about the wine business? <laughs> no. <laughs> My neighbor comes over. And he's got he's got his vineyard there, and he said, "I tell you what, uh, if you let me plant uh, the, the the varietals, uh, I'll buy them from you." And I'm going, yeah. "That's a great deal." I said, wow. "Let's get a contract." He said, eh, "We'll get a con get around to it." So, uh, you know, I buy the buy the uh, the varietals. Don't know which ones are I'm getting. I get I, for what for the audience's purposes. Uh, clone 337 and clone 4 and the root stem is 10114 which I'm sure is just Greek to you but they're very critical things you need to know if you're about to, to plant a vineyard Okay. Uh, uh, and then uh, you know so I'm ready to. You, you, it, when you buy a, when you plant a vineyard you don't get your first commercial crop until year 3 it's called third leaf okay. I get my first commercial crop but before I get my first commercial crop the guy moves away and files for bankruptcy. So, oh, I have, no. <laughs> so, so, I, so I've got a vineyard now with uh, uh, with grapes that I don't know anything about. And I say, you know what? Just figure it out. So I uh, worked with one guy my first year who, uh, uh, who was a winemaker. And, we, and, and the grapes, when they, I should say, when, when they turned it into wine, it was fabulous. I said, we got good, good grapes. I had felt like I knew what I was doing in you terms like of what you what like. I like. You like right. what you like. So I found a guy who would work with me, and that's literally how we got started. Interesting. Interesting. So, and so how uh, long has it been? Uh, let's see. I bought the place in 2006. Uh, okay. We had the first commercial product in 2009. I think we had 25 cases. Uh, and then 2010 was literally the first commercial release. Uh, so basically since 2010, uh, we've been making a line. So and, you're you one know, of the, go ahead. Go on. No, no I was no. gonna say you're one of the first lawyer cause there's several lawyers now who have what, you know, uh, labels right. or, but you were one of the first ones, especially black cause there are a couple of black lawyers now that I know of, but you were one of the first ones, right? Could be. I didn't, I wasn't thinking first. I was just thinking, let's take a shot and see what happens. I mean, the problem with the wine business is it's fundamentally it's expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, Napa, Napa dirt is the most expensive in the world. Uh, and if you don't believe it, come up and try to buy an acre. <laughs> yeah. and you know exactly what I mean. That it ship has sailed for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, would have sailed for me too. Bottom line is the dirt's expensive. Uh, you pay a, a, a lot for the uh, the management to come in and, 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 and plant the vineyard and then maintain it. And then you have to hire a winemaker. And then after you've done all that, and then you, you then have to harvest the fruit. You then have to uh, have it uh, converted into wine. The whole process from harvest to bottling uh, is typically a minimum of three years, likely mm. four. And then you mm. got to have it in the bottle for another year. So basically, you you don't get a return on your investment for anywhere from four to five years. So don't quit your day job, right? No, no, <laughs> don't quit your day job. And the other thing to remember is now you've got to sell it. 
And the problem right. is you've got you competing against hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people. So trying to differentiate yourself is its own problem. Uh, and then there are different price segments that uh, uh, that you have to consider. Uh, so you know it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a nice pastime so to speak. Um, but it like everything else, it's extraordinarily competitive and. Uh, you got to be able to sink a fair amount of money in with no real uh, uh, prospects that your return is going to be equal to the amount of your investment. That's why But it sounds says, like it brings you joy. It sounds like it, it does, does bring you joy. It does. It absolutely. I enjoy it. I have a fun time. Um, I'm involved in the process uh, in, in, in tasting, figuring out what flavor profiles you like, uh, things like that. And to me, that is fun. Uh, and so... You know, I, as long as I like it, great. But if I don't, I can sell my grapes. Right. Now, uh, tell us um, tell us the name of it. Tell us the website. You know, give us. I oh, know, I, the, the, the blend is amazing. And I, I'm usually, I have really bad allergies. So I don't, I tend not to drink a lot of wine or particularly red wine. But that right. blend um is is smooth and it and does not give me a headache so um, good well I, I can tell you why it doesn't uh okay. well so so uh, if you're interested go to okapi o-k-a-p-i wines plural dot com uh that's our that's our website um what we do is we do what's called sustainable farming which means we we use as little uh chemicals as possible uh and we use as little water as possible the reason, you use, the reason for using less water, uh, besides being environmentally a sound thing, is grapes do better when they're stressed a bit and they produce better fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, the other thing we do is uh, we work with a guy who, who basically was trained uh, in France. And the, so what, we, what, he, what he does is everything as natural as possible. So we don't use uh, a lot of commercial yeast use a lot of live yeast. This doesn't make, won't make a lot of sense to you, but here's the bottom line. We also construct the wine in a way so that we lower the tannin level so it's, okay. it's going to be smoother and, and approachable. Uh, and on the blends, we have two blends, Dan Rouge, which was a joke because it, <laughs> it was supposed to be Van Rouge, which is red wine in France, in French. And a buddy said, that's Dan Rouge, man. <laughs> I said, you know what? I like it. So we did Dan Ruse, and then uh, we were going to do a lower price blend. And while we were developing it, uh, my wife Kim, uh, she she said it differently. But let's just put it this way: she thought it would be appropriate to have a wine named after her. Uh-huh. So we so we came out with Alchemy, A L K I M M Y. So okay. Kimmy now has her wine. Okay. Uh, and yeah, it's done really well. I mean, we've, uh, the sales are good. Um, we are marketing strategies only to really high end restaurants. So you can buy it, uh, at the French laundry, for example, mm-hmm. or at Solage or Cole's chop house, a few other places. Um, so our goal is high end, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, 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 not priced as high as a lot of the others, but still, you know, when you're asking for a hundred dollars a bottle for the the cab, down to forty eight, you know, it's still it's still pricey. But there's no way to around around that because of the cost of everything in Napa Valley. Well, but we're, come, we're having fun. You've come a long way from your humble beginnings, my brother. <laughs> I, I was talking to my cousin. Uh, I don't know if you know John Burroughs. He's a civil rights lawyer mm-hmm. uh, in the Bay Area. Anyway, John and I were having lunch, and he says to me, he says, man, how in the world did we come from a place like Vallejo and you end up as a winemaker? <laughs> I laughed. Yeah. I said, you know what? Because you don't set limits on yourself. There you go. There you go. Don't and... set limits on yourself. Don't assume you can't do it because somebody said it can't be done. And you know what? We are almost out of time. I think that's a right. great place to, to to end. I do. You did one other thing. You did say to me that, you know, if you can do anything at this point, you would want to try to help others, help others 
you know, understand what it takes to be successful um, because you didn't have that. Do you you want to say a little bit about that before we end? Sure. I mean, I I think I think that that one of the great struggles uh, for uh, for minorities is they they're they're blazing the path alone. They don't have people to talk to who can say this is what's likely to happen to you. Here are things you can do differently. Um, I know I try to do that as much as I can um, because I think it's so important because some people, there, there are people out there who would make it if they just could see around the corner. And having gone around the corner, I think it's important if, if, if asked to do it. Now, uh, you know, most, uh, there are people out there who are willing to listen and there are others who aren't. And no one says you have the right answer. But I just think it's important for us to try to give back if we can. And that's why I wanted you. You're like, bro, what, why do you want me on your podcast? I said, <laughs> this is exact. That is exactly why I think that, you know, even if there's only one person who benefits from what you had to say and learn from, from your experience, that makes it all worth it. Yeah, I agree. And you know what, what, what I've been most proud of is I can have conversations with my kid and talk about things that he's experienced, uh, experiencing and say, well, this is what's happening and here's how you can avoid these problems and this is how you can hopefully maneuver your way through to success. And uh, so far, he's been very successful. Awesome. I think, that's, I think that's, that's the best thing we can do for future generations. The legacy that we can leave. Well, right. thank you. Thank you, Dan, for being here to BS with me today. Right. Uh, I really appreciate you. I got to get up there and 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 experience that vineyard soon. Well, when uh, you come, be sure to be sure to let me know so we can arrange a tasting. We are tasting at a place called the uh, the Caves at Soda Canyon. It's about four miles out of Napa, and you get an incredible view of Napa Valley. So it's kind of cool to be uh, uh, drinking good wine. Uh, uh, looking uh, looking down on Napa Valley. Awesome. And I will definitely let you know. So thank you. Thanks again, Dan. Say hi to Kim. And right. thanks to everyone for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.